Chapter 19 of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne. Translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter 19. Science Undaunted. Noble words were those just uttered by the colonel. In the face of the Makalos it was no time for hesitation or discussion, and English and Russians, forgetting their national quarrel, were now reunited for mutual defense more firmly than ever. Emery and Zorn had warmly greeted each other, and the others had sealed their new alliance with a grasp of the hand. The first care of the English was to quench their thirst. Water, drawn from the lake, was plentiful in the Russian camp. Then, as soon as the Makalos were quiet enough to afford some respite, the astronomers, sheltered by a sort of casemate forming part of a deserted fortress, talked of all that had happened since their separation at Kolobeng. It appeared that the same reason had brought the Russians so far to the left of their meridian as has caused the English to turn to the right of theirs. Mount Skorzef, halfway between the two arcs, was the only height in that district which would serve as a station on the banks of Lake Nagami. Each of the meridians crossed the lake, whose opposite shores it was necessary to unite trigonometrically by a large triangle. Naturally, therefore, the two rival expeditions met on the only mountain which could serve their purpose. Matthew Strux then gave some details of his operations. After leaving Kolobeng, the Russian party had continued without irregularity. The old meridian, which had fallen by lot to the Russians, fell across a fertile and slightly undulated country, which offered every facility for the formation of the triangles. Like the English, they had suffered from the heat, but they experienced no hardship from the want of water. Streams were abundant and kept up a wholesome moisture. The horses and oxen had roamed over an immense pasturage, across verdant prairies broken by forests and underwood. The wild animals by night had been safely kept at a distance by sentinels and fires, nor had any natives been seen except those stationary in the villages in which Dr. Livingstone had always found a hospitable reception. All through the journey the bookiesmen of the caravan had given no cause for complaint, nor was it until the previous day, when the Makalos to the number of two hundred or three hundred had appeared on the plain, that they had shown themselves faithless and deserted. For thirty-six hours the expedition had now occupied the little fortress. The Makalos had attacked them in the evening after plundering the wagons left at the foot of the hill. The instruments, fortunately, having been carried into the fort, were secure. The steamboat had also escaped the ravages of the natives. It had been immediately put together by the sailors and was now at anchor in a little creek of Lake Nagami, behind the enormous rocks that formed the base of the mountain. Mount Scorzef sloped with sudden abruptness down to the lake, and there was no danger of an attack from that side. Such was Matthew Strux's account. Colonel Everest, in his turn, related the incidents of this march, the fatigues and difficulties, and the revolt of the Bokiesmen, and it was found by comparison that the Russians had had a less harassing journey than their rivals. The night of the 21st passed quietly. The bushmen and sailors kept watch under the walls of the fort. The Makalos, on their part, did not renew any attack, but the bivouac fires at the base of the mountain proved that they had not relinquished their project. At daybreak, the Europeans left their casement for the purpose of reconnoitering the plain. The early morning light illuminated the vast extent of country as far as the horizon. Towards the south lay the desert, with its burnt, brown grass and barren aspect. Close under the mountain was a circular camp containing a swarm of 400 to 500 natives. The fires were still alight, and some pieces of venison broiling on the hot embers. The encampment was something more than temporary. The Maclos were evidently determined not to abandon their prey. Either vengeance or an instinctive thirst for blood appeared to be prompting them, since all the valuables of both caravans, the wagons, horses, oxen, and provisions, had fallen into their power. 
or perhaps it might be that they coveted the firearms which the Europeans carried, and of which they made such terrible use. The United English and Russians held a long consultation with the Bushmen, and it was felt that they could not relax their watch until they should arrive at a definite decision. This decision must depend on a variety of circumstances, and first of all it was necessary to understand the exact position of Mount Skorzev. The mountain overlooked to the south, east, and west the vast desert which the astronomers, having traversed it, knew extended southwards to the Karoo. In the west could be discerned the faint outlines of the hills bordering the fertile country of the Makalos, one of whose capitals, Maketo, lies about a hundred miles northwest of Lake Nagami. To the north the mountain commanded a country which was a great contrast to the arid steppes of the south. There were water, trees, and pasturage. For a hundred miles east and west lay the wide Lake Nagami, while from north to south its length was not more than thirty to forty miles. Beyond appeared a gentle, undulating country enriched with forests and watered by the affluence of the Zambezi, and shut into the extreme north by a low chain of mountains. This wide oasis was caused by the great artery, the Zambezi, which to South Africa is what the Danube is to Europe, or the Amazon to South America. The side of the mountain towards the lake, steep as it was, was not so steep that the sailors could accomplish an ascent and descent by narrow ways which passed from point to point. They thus contrived to reach the spot where the Queen and Tsar lay hid, and, obtaining a supply of water, enabled the little garrison to hold out in the deserted fort as long as their provisions lasted. The astronomers wondered why this little fort had been placed on the top of the mountain. Mokwum, who had visited the country as Livingstone's guide, explained that formerly the neighborhood of Lake Nagami was frequented by traders in ivory and ebony. The ivory was furnished by the elephants and rhinoceroses. But the ebony trade was but too often another name for that traffic in human beings which is still carried on by the slave traders in the region of the Zambezi. A great number of prisoners are made in the wars and pillages in the interior of the country, and these prisoners are sold as slaves. Mount Skorzev had been a center of encampment for the ivory traders, and it was there that they had been accustomed to rest before descending the Zambezi. They had fortified their position to protect themselves and their slaves from depredations, since it was not an uncommon occurrence for the prisoners to be recaptured for fresh sale by the very men who had recently sold them. The route of the traders was now changed. They no longer passed the shores of the lake, and the little fort was falling into ruins. All that remained was an enclosure in the form of the sector of a circle, from the center of which rose a small casemated redoubt, pierced with loopholes and surmounted by a small wooden turret. But notwithstanding the condition of the ruin into which it had fallen, the fortress offered the Europeans a welcome retreat. Behind the thick sandstone walls and armed with their rapidly loading guns, they were confident that they could keep back an army of Makalos, and, unless their provisions and ammunition failed, they would be able to complete their observations. At present they had plenty of ammunition. The coffer in which it was contained had been placed on the same wagon which carried the steamboat, and therefore had escaped the rapacity of the natives. The great difficulty would be the possible failure of provisions. The colonel and Strux made a careful inspection of the store, and found that there was only enough to last the eighteen men for two days. After a short breakfast, the astronomers and the bushmen, leaving the sailors still to keep watch round the walls, assembled in the redoubt to discuss their situation. "'I cannot understand,' said Mokwum, "'why you are so uneasy. You said that we have only provision for two days, but why stay here? Let us leave tomorrow, or even today. The Makalos need not hinder us. They could not cross the lake, and in the steamboat we may reach the northern shore in a few hours.' The astronomers looked at each other. The idea, natural as it was, had not struck them before. Sir John was the first to speak. But we have not yet completed the measurement of our meridian. Will the Maclos have any regard for your meridian? asked the hunter. Very likely not, answered Sir John, but we have a regard for it, and will not leave our undertaking incomplete. I am sure my colleagues agree with me. Yes, said the colonel, speaking for all, 
As long as one of us survives and is able to put his eye to the telescope, the survey shall go on. If necessary, we will take our observations with our instrument in one hand and our gun in the other, even to the last extremity. The energetic philosophers shouted out the resolutions to proceed at every hazard. When it was thus decided that the survey should at all risks be continued, the question arose as to the choice of the next station. Although there would be a difficulty, said Strux, in joining Mount Scorzef trigonometrically to a station to the north of the lake, it is not impracticable. I have fixed on a peak in the extreme northeast, so that the side of the triangle will cross the lake obliquely. Well, said the colonel, if the peak exists, I do not see any difficulty. The only difficulty, replied Strux, consists in the distance. What is the distance? Over a hundred miles, and a lighted signal must be carried to the top of the peak. Assuredly, that can be done, said the colonel. And all that time, how are we to defend ourselves against the Makalos? asked the bushman. We will manage that, too. Mokwum said that he would obey the colonel's orders, and the conversation ended. The whole party left the casement, and Strux pointed out the peak that he had chosen. It was the conical peak of Volcaria, 300 feet high, and just visible in the horizon. Notwithstanding the distance, a powerful reflector could thence be discerned by means of a magnifying telescope, and the curvature of the earth's surface, which Strux had taken into account, would not be any obstacle. The real difficulty was how the lamp should be hoisted to the top of the mountain. The angle made at Mount Skorzev with Mount Volcaria, and the preceding station would probably complete the measurement of the meridian, so that the operation was all important. Zorn and Emery offered to take this journey of a hundred miles in an unknown country, and, accompanied by the pioneer, prepared to start. One of the canoes of birch bark, which are manufactured by the natives with great dexterity, would be sufficient to carry them over the lake. Mukwum and the pioneer descended to the shore, where was growing some dwarf birches, and in a very short time had accomplished their task, and prepared the canoe. At eight o'clock in the evening the newly constructed craft was loaded with instruments, the apparatus for the reverberator, provisions, arms, and ammunition. It was arranged that the astronomers should meet again in a small creek known to both Mokwum and the Pioneer. It was also agreed that as soon as the reverberator on Mount Vicaria should be perceived, Colonel Everest should light a signal on Mount Skorzev so that Emery and Zorn, in their turn, might take the direction. The young men took their leave of their colleagues, and, descending the mountain in the obscurity of night, having been preceded by the pioneer and two sailors, one English and one Russian. The mooring was loosened, and the frail boat turned quickly across the lake. End of chapter 19